it is an insane struggle to get out of bed. It is too much effort to take a shower. You know, I just don't want to. It's so you get in those periods and and I don't like those periods. They would last for uh, months, actually. Welcome to the Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the show, The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, the host, and uh, I'm excited I'm here with Vincent M. Wales on the show. Vince is an author and he is also a co-host of the very popular podcast, The Psych Central Show. Vince, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Hey, I'm uh, very excited to have you on the line. I met you, I think it was probably a year ago for the first time yeah. uh, at a conference and it was the same right. conference where I met your uh, co-host Gabe. Uh, you were both at the Healthy Voices conference. In Chicago, yeah. In Chicago, which uh, was a good a gr- time. Yeah, a fantastic conference. I'm sure listeners have uh, heard me describe it before, but it's all online advocates of chronic illnesses. And uh, just a fantastic conference. They put on a great show. And meeting all of the advocates is really cool because everybody's yeah. really passionate. They're passionate about what they advocate for, but they're just passionate, good people. Right. I agree. And uh, so I met you there as another one of the mental health advocates. So that was awesome and learned about your show. I've listened to you guys quite a bit. Uh, Thank you. Before we get into uh, into talking about the Psych Central show, which I'd love to hear about, where does your story around depression begin? Where does it begin? Wow. Um I can answer that two ways. I can answer it in the way that I'm aware that it began or in the way that it probably really did begin. I wasn't diagnosed as being someone with depression until I was about 20 or so. Um, But the truth is I probably have had it since I was a child. And that's looking back on it from right. Right. Yeah. So, and also looking at, you know, what, what triggers I've had in my life that, you know, could have messed me up. And, and there were some pretty clear ones around the time I was five years old. So it probably started not long after that. Uh, are you able to share with us what the, what those triggers are that you're referencing that happened at age five? Yeah, sure. Um, when I was five, my mother, um, decided suddenly that she needed to move across the country and rather than take me with her, she left me with her parents. Wow. So I, uh, yeah. Now, we kept in touch, of course. You know, we wrote, we called, that kind of stuff. And then when I was older, we, we visited each other. But it was still, and, I, and it took me a long time to accept that this was the case, it still was abandonment. Oh, absolutely. 
And I, I denied that for so many years, you know, I, I was always one to defend what she did because, well, you know, nobody wants you to say bad stuff about their mom. So that's really, I think, what's at the root of a lot of the problems I have, you know, the depression and the, uh, the attachment disorders. <laughs> so that's and, another show entirely. <laughs> and at age five, uh, did she just essentially told you i mean what do you remember about that she was just like not, all right i gotta leave not a damn thing yeah and the funny thing is i have plenty of memories from around that age and earlier but i do not remember her leaving at all probably blocked it out yeah could Did, be so you were raised by your grandparents mm-hmm. and they i would imagine were like parents to you yeah, uh, my grandmother actually passed away just a few years after that. Uh, so it was basically just me and my grandfather uh, when I was growing up. Now, of course, I came to call him dad because, you know, they legally adopted me too. So so there was that. But about around 11 years old, I started calling him dad instead of grandpa. Uh-huh. And you mentioned staying in touch with your mom. But back then, of course, there there was no Skype. There was no, right. no email. Just handwritten letters and phone calls. Uh huh. And how would you describe your relationship with your mom then? Well, you know, when I was really young, it was, um, well, pretty superficial. You know, we just talk about what I was up to and things like that. She asked me about school and you know, yada yada. And she was living in Arizona at the time, and I was envious of that because I wanted to go and see the Grand Canyon and all of that stuff. So, yeah, there wasn't a whole lot a whole lot to it. And um, over the years, we became less and less close because she – I'm certain she was mentally ill also. And although I'm not really qualified to make the diagnosis, everything kind of points to a something akin to schizophrenia okay uh do you have any examples or or Mm, reasons for that one day we were talking and i don't remember what caused this to come up in conversation but she said that she saw demons everywhere and i thought she just meant you know bad people so i said you mean you know figuratively right she said no and i said okay Wow. Yeah, that was a big wow moment for me, truthfully. I just, how do you respond to that? Yeah, right. How old were you at the time of that conversation? I want to say I was probably about 14 or 15. Wow, yeah. How do you respond as a 14 or 15-year-old trying to make sense of that? Yep. <laughs> yeah, that was that was fun. What was the rest of your uh, childhood like growing up, you know, from age five through high school, you're being raised by your granddad for the most part, mm-hmm. it sounds like. Um, yeah. was, was school all right? Did you make it to school all the time? Did you have other symptoms looking back on it that you would say may have been depression or another type of mental illness? Um, I was always quite lonely as a kid. I mean, I had friends. You know, We grew up on the same street, and I always had somebody to play with when I was a kid, so that was never really the issue. But I never was comfortable around girls. I was scared to death of them, honestly. And, you know, you get to be in in high school and all your friends have a boyfriend or girlfriend and you're just kind of the odd one out. And that was, that was kind of a nightmare. Um, 
Yeah. So, and I was, you know, not, I was not in the real popular crowd. Um, I wasn't an outcast or anything either, but, but high school was, was kind of torture as it is for many people. Uh But you were going to classes. Would you do all right grade wise and studying and so forth? For the most part. Yeah. Um, uh, well, actually, I, I was terrible at studying because I, I never learned how. When I was in elementary school and, and junior high, I didn't really need to study because I I just absorbed all this stuff and, and, and knew it. But then when I got uh, into like my senior year and then in college, uh, studying became required. And uh, I, I wasn't exactly a master of that. So things went downhill. Okay. Where, uh, where did you go to college? Penn State. And things, I mean, are you talking like they really went downhill? Did you did you make it through uh, college? I did make it through college on the six-year plan. Okay. But, of course, that included a change of major and taking uh, two semesters off during that time. So, technically only five years, I suppose. Okay. And I think uh, you said you were around 20, so probably in college when you were finally diagnosed with something? Yeah, exactly. Um, I was, uh, how did this come about? I I had this one friend that I met in one of my English classes and, um, we were, we were chatting and and I think I was just telling her about how, how down I was feeling and everything. And and she was the one who suggested that I go to the on-campus psychological services, which were free to students. Uh, so I did that. And that was where the diagnosis came. And uh, it was essentially just one conversation with that person. She made that recommendation and you were like, yeah, maybe I should oh, just no. get this checked out. No, it wasn't just one conversation. We, we got together frequently and talked and, you know, and, but you know, the moment that I thought something was really wrong though, came unexpectedly when I was at home um, and I was in the, the mall in a neighboring town and I bumped into a friend I hadn't seen in quite some time. And so we stood there and we were chatting and I was quite happy to see her. But then she said, why are you so depressed? Wow. Yeah. And I'm thinking, wait, uh, I'm not, I'm not depressed. I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm, I'm excited to see you, but clearly I was not. Yeah. So that was really what, what did it. Uh huh. And it's interesting because the, the prior conversation you mentioned, you were sharing with somebody that you had been feeling down. Yeah, I think this came after that. Uh-huh. that scene. So that's it, it triggered things. When I look back, if I were to look back today and pull out my writings from, say, 1984, when I was 20, um, they are filled, filled with things that just scream depression. Of course, you, I didn't can you remember it, any off the off the top of your head? Sure. Yeah, I had this. Uh, I wrote this one poem for my poetry class, and it. I mean, it described what depression feels like. Although I did not know that. I remember saying things like, you know, uh, I felt like I had a that my brain was suffocating. That it felt like I just wanted to rip my skull open and let some cold water wash over it, some fresh air to, to clean it out there. But otherwise it was just stagnant and like foggy and stuff. And, and yeah, it's like, yep, that's depression. All right. Oh yeah. Were you having any other symptoms at the time or was it just kind of a consistent feeling of sadness? 
you know, sadness is not really the word. Um, it's closer to numbness than anything else. You know, it's more like nothing really makes me happy. Nothing really upsets me either, though. It's like my ability to feel these things is just terribly muted. And that's what depression has always been like for me. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I you know, I'm a little surprised. I think I used the word sad just because you had mentioned that you had told the woman that you had been sad because I don't think of depression typically as being sad either. Um, and numbness is the way I tend to usually describe it too, just like a lack of any kind of feeling. Yeah. And I think it's actually a terrible misconception by many that depression equals sadness. So, yes, absolutely. Um, and, uh, and that's one of the things, one of the reasons for the podcast is really so that people can really understand how different depression really is. People can learn about it. People can hear from some about just how debilitating it can be. And, uh, and it's different with everybody. In fact, uh, why don't you share with us what happened as you made the decision to go in and, and be evaluated and what happened at that appointment? And, and do you remember walking in and how you were feeling going to that appointment? Well, I remember going. Um, I don't really remember how I was feeling, though. Um, probably nervous, yeah. honestly. Um, but you went willingly, it sounds like. I did. I went willingly, and I met with the, the intake counselor, and we talked and talked and talked, and she asked me a lot of questions, and I answered them. And then at the end of which, she said, okay, I think we're going to pair you up with, you know, Dr. So-and-so, and... Then I had 10 sessions with Dr. So-and-so, and it was, I, I remember it being hard for me to open up, which today I find really funny because I'm very open about anything today. But we would have these, you know, 50-minute sessions, and it would take me probably 20 or more to really start talking. Right. And that was, that was sad. But it was at the very first session with him that he pulled out the term chronic depression. And it was funny because I said, oh, okay, so uh, how do I get rid of it? Right. And he just, he kind of looked at me with uh, this, you know, devastated look on his face. And he said, well, you're, you're probably not gonna. <laughs> you're probably gonna have it the rest of your life, but we can make it easier. Uh -huh. and I, I said, easier is good, so okay. And that was in your very first appointment with him. That's right. Yeah. Very first one. And how do you think, based on one appointment with you, that he would come up with a diagnosis of chronic depression? Because uh, he asked me things like, how long has this been going on? And of course, I said, as long as I can remember. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, it wasn't like a one-time thing or, right. or anything like that. So, and now then, he was... He was a psychologist, so he couldn't prescribe medications or anything. Um, not that I would have been inclined to that anyway. And this is one of the biggest mistakes that I made in my life was that even though at age 20 I knew that I had depression, I didn't believe I needed meds because I thought I could just deal with it on my own. Whereas every sign indicated that I couldn't handle it whatsoever. So why should knowing what it was make any difference? It didn't. Right. And, and it, you know, continued to muck up my life. And it wasn't until I was 
until more than 20 years later that I finally said, okay, maybe, maybe meds are not something I should avoid. And so I started on, on antidepressants and things have been better. I mean, they've not been, you know, glorious or anything since then. I still, I still have depression, but I have nothing now like what I did uh, when I was 20. They still use the term dysthymia, don't they? Yeah, just it's sometimes and, and, you know, chronic depression was what I was first told it was. Um, and I think today they refer to it mostly as persistent depressive disorder. Okay. So dysthymia is an old term that's no longer used? I can't go that far to say it's not used, but I see it less and less. Okay. Chronic persistent depression. Mm-hmm. And so you lived from the time you were diagnosed age 20 until you said about 44, did you say? Somewhere around that age, Without yeah. medication. What did you do to help mitigate the depression, and what helped you for all of those years? Well, the truth is, I really didn't do a whole lot to mitigate it. Other things in my life, you know, added some happiness to it. You know, I got married and, and all this stuff, but the depression was certainly part of what caused that marriage to end. And... Um, yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't, it wasn't really, I don't know who I thought I was fooling in, in thinking that I could handle it. Were you seeing a therapist at all during that time? Um, not during my first marriage. No, I did. Uh, I did see a counselor again at the end of my, uh, toward the end of my second marriage. And this was interesting because this one was, it was not through my health plan, it was through like uh, an employee assistance program. So I had like three or four sessions uh, before I would have to actually pay for it. And this woman was amazing. She was a no nonsense. Um, she was not one of those people who was going to sit there and let me try to figure me out since it was quite clear that I couldn't. And she just laid everything on the line. And she said, this is why you behave this way. This is why you have this habit. This is why you do this. And I'm just like, holy crap. Why didn't I not see that before? And again, it all went back to mommy. All right. Yep. And have you done any serious therapy and work around your, your situation with your mom? Um, no. Uh, it's difficult since she's passed away. I can't really talk to her about anything. I remember I did one time, you know, sort of write a letter to her that was basically me getting a lot of stuff off my chest that I didn't even know was really there before. But, um, and you know, now I don't, uh, I, I don't hold anything against her or anything. I, I know that she had her issues and, you know, she couldn't control hers any better than I can control mine. So I, I can't really hold that against her. Right. I, I do miss her. But I know that I'm very happy I didn't grow up with her, too. Do you really believe that she has to still be alive for you to work through your issues relating to your mom? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, no, but it would be nice to get feedback. You know, it would be nice to hear things from her perspective. Mm -hmm. But, you know... Say Levy. Well, I feel like she's gone, right? And I'm yeah. sorry for your loss. 
Uh, and at the same time, you know, if working through some of those issues and talking to a therapist and doing some therapy around how your relationship was and what it was, what it meant to have your mom leave you at age five, if that could still help you, even if your mom isn't around for you to reflect on things with her, um, you could probably reflect with a therapist and yes. work through some of those issues and, and maybe there's still more work you can do and maybe there, it would, I don't, I don't know. It's just a, there's, a there's always more work you can do. Have you heard of EMDR? Yes. So yes, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had it? No, I haven't. Is that something you would consider? Because I'm just curious in my mind, like I think trauma is essentially in the eye of the beholder, right? Like a little mm -hmm. kid could have two parents who get divorced and one kid might be like, hallelujah, because all you guys do is fight all day. Uh -huh. Another yeah. kid might be devastated, right? Like you mean you're, li you're living over there and you're over there and, and could be, it could be very traumatic, right? So I feel like a mom leaving you at age five was would definitely consist of trauma. And then EMDR, they say, is specifically for... Um, working through traumatic events in your life and uh, and they get pretty emotional but the people and I know at least five people personally who have uh, received EMDR therapy including a, a couple social workers I know who had their own trauma and uh, people just said it was phenomenal phenomenal really? experiences I do think uh, you got to make sure it's a really solid uh, therapist who is doing the therapy and typically what I hear is um, a good therapist works with you at least two or three times and gets to know you and and mm -hmm. before they work with the EMDR um, mm -hmm. and for those people who don't know what EMDR is really like you said you know cognitively you're you, you know it was better off that your mom left you right but there's the emotional core right that that, do, that doesn't matter what your, your cognitive understanding is saying Right. So there's this emotional core that's still impacted and EMDR, it's eye movement because they used to have a little light that your eyes would follow or use their finger while mm -hmm. talking you through the trauma. And nowadays they do other things for senses. So sometimes I've heard of people holding kind of egg shaped plastic balls that vibrate so that they're tapping into your senses that way. Hmm. Um, and then they, they work through the, the trauma with you and it, it sounds incredible. So I would urge you at least to just check into it. Yeah, I will. I, that does sound interesting. Um, I need to read up on that. Yeah. Definitely. Speaking of, speaking of light though, my, my psychiatrist recently suggested that I get a, uh, an all spectrum light, you know, for light therapy yeah. because she thinks that maybe seasonal affective disorder is part of my issue. So I, I did get one of those and that was, well, let's see about two weeks ago. Oh, cool. Um, and I met with her yesterday and she asked if, if it had been helping. And I said, well, here's the thing. I, I don't know because although I am feeling better now than I did the last time I saw you, there, there's the light, but I also increased my one antidepressant at the same time. Mm -hmm. And also, I just returned from five days in Portland where I had a lovely time. Oh, awesome. So I don't know what, uh, what it is that is causing me to feel better this week, but I'm happy for whatever it is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're speaking right to the heart of so 
many of the difficulties in even like antidepressants, right? Like, are they people have concerns as to whether or not they really work if there's a placebo effect? And right. and how do you really isolate that one factor in somebody's life, you know, to really assess whether it's that that's helping or if it's a little bit because somebody got a new job or their relationship with their wife is going better or mm -hmm. whatever. Um, but I do. Well, there, oh, go ahead. Yeah, there's well, there's everything is like that. There's no single cure for anything, any of our ills, you know, because life is complex. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it adds to the factor just because our brains are so complex, mm -hmm. you know, Indeed. so if you're fixing an arm, it's complex, too, but it's not not like the brain. Right. Um, yeah. Well, that's cool. I think, you know, utilizing the light in my mind, I always figure I'm going to use every tool I have to stay out of that deep, dark place that I was in because I don't ever want to get there again. So for example, I've been mentally healthy since 2013. I still go to a men's support group for depression and anxiety every other week. Oh. Um, and, and that's something that I don't want to give up on. Um, and, uh, and I still take one medication, right? So there are certain pieces that I'm not going to give up on because I don't know which one it is that's really right. helping me or if it's the whole picture. Right. So and, I take the risk. Yeah, exactly. And I'm really fearful. I think I would say I don't live in fear, but I am, I mean, I can say I, I would be fearful of getting to a low, low place where I was. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about the diagnosis of chronic depressive disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, so like in my case and everybody's depression is very different, right? I had two major episodes that, you know, essentially knocked me on my ass and I, I was completely debilitated and had to leave work and go to a partial hospitalization program. Mm -hmm. So I've heard chronic depressive disorder is kind of a low grade depression and I don't certainly don't want to discount it and low grade makes it sound um, like it's yours isn't yours isn't nearly as bad as mine so there. right they use, they use the term mild but here here's the comparison think about chronic pain okay if you have a chronic pain like I have I have a back issue so I've I've lived in chronic pain too and I tell you what, I would rather have somebody smack me in the head with a baseball bat, which will feel better, you know, in a day or so, than having chronic pain every single freaking day. Yeah. D depression's the same way. Yeah. You know, having it chronically every day, even at a mild level, it just builds up. There's no sense of relief at any time. Right. That, that makes it, a lot of sense to me. I, I like that analogy. Um, and I would imagine if you were, if you knew you were going to pull out of it and be fine, you'd probably rather take a major episode than, yeah. than constant I, persistent. Yeah. Get it over in a few days or a week and I'm fine, you know, and then you're fine for, you know, many, many, many months. Great. I'd, I'd love that. And then, so with this chronic depressive disorder diagnosis, I think I might've mentioned this to you when I saw you, but for me, it seems almost like you're throwing your arms up. You aren't, because like you said, you're getting a light, right? And and you're interested in continuing therapy and so forth. But it feels almost like people are throwing their hands up and saying, oh, well, I've got this. It's the rest of my life. And I just feel like there's always got to be hope mm -hmm. that, that maybe one day you'll find the right thing that 
that does away with your depression completely? Why does it yep. have to be so pervasive and, and uh, you know, lifelong? Well, I think part of it is that having depression can, can literally change the structure of your brain and how it works. And you get into this habit, you know, it's, it's like if you, if you have a slouch, for example, and you don't do anything to correct that slouch, you're going to have that posture issue for the rest of your life because that's just what you're used to. Your right. body won't know what to do otherwise to, to stand up straight or whatever. And the brain is the same way. It, it has its own routines. And when that routine involves, you know, being depressed all the time, then, then that's what it's going to do. But so much research talks about how malleable the brain is and that you can make new connections and change the, the structure. I don't know about the structure, but change the connections and everything and so forth in the brain. So, Sure, but there's not an easy way to do that. Nobody says, well, okay, you've got this kind of depression, so here's what you need to do specifically to, to reconfigure your wiring. Well, I'm certainly not saying it's easy or there's yeah. an easy fix, but yeah. I, but I do feel like without that sense of hope of, you know, one day I will get better, it would, it would kind of squash all of the efforts personally that I would want to put in getting better or even thinking that I can get better. Um, so mm -hmm. how do you deal with that? Well, I try to look at it as well, I hate to put it this way, but I do kind of look at it as a part of who I am. That's not to say that I want to keep it, you know, because, you know, these extra 40 pounds are part of who I am, too, and I'd really like those to go away. <laughs> I but, can relate to that as well. But if I had, you know, lost a limb at some point in my life, I would want that back, too. But I would also have to say, well, <laughs> that's not going to happen. So... What can I do to continue going on? Well, of course, you know, there are artificial limbs that are just getting more and more advanced and, and far out every day. So that's that's the way that you can cope with that. That would be the closest thing to, you know, taking meds for your depression, for example, um, or therapy or what have you. So I just, um, I, I guess that being alive, even even with crappy depression all the time, is better than the alternative. Right. So here I am. And yeah, I mean, I think of it, you, you know, I like that analogy as well, because there could be people out there who lose a limb who then say, well, screw it. I'm going to sit in this wheelchair. I don't have a leg. I can't do anything where there yeah. are others who say, well, I'm going to work on my arm strength. I'm going to, uh, you know, in uh, I'm going to join some sports for people with a disability. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, and there are Olympians with, with a leg all gone, you know, and so forth. Yeah. So, um, and I would imagine that could be the same way living with chronic depressive disorder, right? You could say, I'm going to do what I can to, um, to keep working at it I, and, and possibly getting better and better, even though, you know, your baseline or your norm in my mind, I like to think of it as a continuum. So mm -hmm. even with chronic depressive disorder, which I know very little about, I would be hopeful that there's a continuum, right? And you're at a certain point and the more effort and pieces you put in to working towards 
recovery from depression, the closer you'll get towards the right side of the continuum and you'll continue mm-hmm. to move along. Maybe you'll still have chronic depression, but maybe, like you said, what your chronic depression right now is way better than it was when you were 20. Right. And that's probably because a lot of the work and effort that you've put into it. I'd like to think so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I I think that's where the the piece of hope can still come from. Um, But that's interesting. You know, I think you are the first person on the show with chronic depressive disorder. I feel honored. (laughs) Is it a, (laughs) is it an unusual diagnosis? Are there many fewer people with chronic depressive I, I have never looked at statistics on that so I, I really can't say but I do know that the that it's well I, well let me say it this way I have heard that the suicide rate is actually higher for my type of depression than major depression really and I think it's because you know the major depression although it repeats you have the you have the non-depressed periods yeah. So you have the reprieves, whereas with this you don't. And um, you know, I can sound all, all jovial and everything on a on an interview, but you know, it's it's not like that. It's there's always that, you know, that little beastie sitting inside that's, you know, not making you a happy guy. And oh, it's got to so be wearing. I, yeah. So again, to get back to the chronic pain analogy you know that is something that leads to suicide in many cases yeah um so i mean i i just think that that's kind of the the equivalent right have you had to deal with suicidal ideation as well uh back when i was around 20 yeah i really did um i i had one thing though that that prevented me from doing it and it wasn't my family, it wasn't my friends, it was the first book that I was writing. Wow. Because, yeah, I was, you know, I was so convinced that I was going to be a successful novelist, and I was set on this book being, you know, my first big hit. Uh, it has never been published, by the way, but at the time, that was my, that was my, um, my rope that I hung on to. Mm-hmm. Although there were times when I just fantasized about sitting on the floor of my apartment with my manuscript in one hand and a cigarette lighter in the other. Right. So if I got that thing rid of, then I had no excuse, nothing holding me back to keep me from stepping in front of one of the, one of the public transit buses. Right. But you, you haven't had any kind of suicidal ideation since age 20, you'd say? Not serious ones, no. Uh-huh. I mean, there might have been periods where it had just flitted through my head very briefly, but never a time when I really seriously thought about it. Uh-huh. And does your depression also have uh, different, uh, what's the word? I mean, is it worse at times and oh, yeah. easier at times, even though it's chronic? It's not always yes. at the same level. Right, exactly. It's it's like a little wave. I'm not saying it's even. It's not even a cycle that you can predict. Uh-huh. You know, it's not like two weeks on, two weeks off. You know, like a shift at work. It's unpredictable. Okay. Um, and sometimes I will I will get to points where it's practically a major depressive disorder, where it is an insane struggle to get out of bed. Mm-hmm. It is too too much effort to take a shower. You know, I just don't wanna. 
it's right. so you get in those periods and and I don't like those periods. Yeah. How long would a period like that last for you? Well, in the past they would last for uh months actually. Really? But, yeah. But now um it's it's more like a week something like that. And during those weeks you are still able to get out of bed it just takes a lot of effort. Mhm. And you're able to still you know, do your work and whatever you need to do. So you're still able to, to... I, I am, but you know, it's, it's a bare minimum. Yeah. There's, there's nothing extra. Right. It's like I'll go to the grocery store someday, but not right now. I'll just order pizza. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, certainly, you know, and, and where does one draw the line? Right. Like, I mean, that yeah. certainly could be considered major depression. Right. I mean, well, yeah. And there is this fun little thing called double depression. Oh, that sounds, I have never heard the term and it just sounds lovely. That is major depression and persistent depressive disorder at the same time. Oh my goodness. The double whammy. Yep. And it is certainly possible that, that I have that. I've never, we've never looked into that, but the treatment wouldn't be any different anyway. So, well, I was just going to ask that if, if you know, that's the case, would they change a med, add a med, change your dosage or do anything around the medication possibly? Well, we're always monitoring how the dosages are doing. Um, like I said, just a couple of weeks ago, I increased one of my medications. Um, and in the past year, I've, I've tried out a few different ones um, and went off of them due to some side effects I didn't really care for. Right. But um, yeah, we're always keeping a look on it to see what we can do, if it's if it's working, if it's if it needs to be tweaked or changed or what have you. That's interesting. That's, you know, very different than my experience. And I think from what I've heard too, from most people with the, what do you, uh, stereotypical, just a, a regular depression, not the mm-hmm. chronic, you know, if they have had a couple of episodes and decide to stay on a medication, typically it's like one, uh, for a long, long, long time, unless, uh, unless it has the so-called poop-out factor yeah. and, and starts to not work. But it sounds like yours is a little more med management throughout. Yeah, there's a fair bit of it, although it's not I, – I don't want to make it sound like there, there's this constant flux in what I'm taking because it's not like that. It, that change that we did this, this few months ago was the, the first one in years, so – you know, it's it's not all that common. What made you decide to change then so recently? Well, things were things were not. I just wasn't feeling as on as I wanted to. Mm-hmm. You know, so I I don't know if it was the poop out factor or what on the uh, on the one med, but we added another one of a different sort of antidepressant to it, um, just to you know kind of cover both bases there. But as I said, the first one of those and the second one of those had some side effects I didn't like. So went to a third one. And even though it still kind of has the same side effect, I'm, I'm like, well, whatever. I guess I'm stuck with that. So, Yeah, you really have to weigh out the pros and cons, right? Um, yes. I think it was your uh, co-host, Gabe, who was recently talking about, you know, like, so this medication has this particular side effect. I'm not willing to have that side effect, so I need to try a different medication. Mm-hmm. It may have a different side effect, such as like dry mouth 
Uh, so mm. I don't mind having dry mouth compared to having my depression. So I'll deal with the dry mouth. Yeah, of the two. <laughs> yeah, and I do think it's really important for people to know that that different medications have different side effects, and don't just live with that side effect, but share that with your doctor, and maybe together the psychiatrist and you decide, okay, it is a side effect I can live with, or try a different medication, try a different dosage. There are ways right. to alleviate many of the side effects. Um, so definitely engage in that conversation with the psychiatrist or prescribing doctor. Yes, absolutely. So when was it that you started uh, advocating around mental illness? And, <laughs> uh, and in what ways do you do it? I know you used to blog. It looked like you weren't blogging too much recently. Um, well, yeah, my blog was not really about mental health or anything. My blog was about writing and, and it's true. I haven't written anything on the blog in over a year, um, because this past year hasn't been great for me. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, you don't, you don't find uh, writing to be therapeutic at all for you? I used to, mm -hmm. you know, back when I was 20, I was writing poetry all the time. Most of it terrible, but you know. Um, I bet it was, it was that's pretty, what it was. I bet it was pretty damn good and <laughs> you were just hard on yourself. Well, it was, it was therapeutic at the very least. Yeah. Uh, none of it was ever, ever written with intent to publish or anything like that. It was all just what I wanted to write. So, but, um, yeah, as it, far as my advocacy, I kind of felt, no, I wasn't, I didn't fall into it. I was yanked into it by Gabe. When he uh, he said, "Hey, Psych Central Show is going to have a, a podcast, and I want you to be my partner," and that's how that happened. So uh, let's be clear now, because I think uh, Gabe's uh, episode is going to be broadcast here soon on the Depression mm -hmm. Files, and I think the story was slightly different. So are you oh, sure I'm, I'm that was how it played now. out? I'm curious now. What did he have to say? <laughs> well, were you his first choice? No. Oh, okay. Now we're no, I was somewhere. not. And <laughs> and and the reason for that is that he knew that I wouldn't really be excited to do it because I don't feel excitement, right? <laughs> um, but the other people that he had in mind, and I haven't the slightest idea now who they were, but he just for one reason or another he felt that they were not a good choice. So. So, so I'm going to give what? you his side of the story, which you'll hear okay. this coming Sunday, uh, which will be out by the time we air this episode. But I believe it had to do with uh, your requirement of or your non-requirement of any kind of payment. <laughs> so one willing to do it for a very low cost. You know, at first we when we started doing this, we did. I, I don't know how successful he ever thought it would be i really wasn't thinking along those lines whatsoever but at the time you know it was like it wasn't a whole lot of time investment and frankly it was fun because back when we started most of our shows were just me and him you know we didn't have very many guests in the in the early days now we're almost exclusively guests but they were fun you know, we would just sit here and just BS with each other and, and chat about a particular topic on mental health and rant and rave and all that. So it wasn't bad. And, and I didn't really mind a whole lot that we were getting paid peanuts for it. But then, of course, we got a sponsor 
and we started getting paid more. And so then we had to get, you know, more, more serious about it, start to get guests and, you know, be more professional and whatnot. So, so yeah, that's how that happened. But no, I don't, I think if Gabe thinks that the reason that he chose me is because I would do it for a pittance, then maybe he's right. But <laughs> I, I don't know that. I don't remember that being a factor. Uh, you know, I remember when I met you too, or maybe it was even, uh, yeah, I think it was when I, we had, were talking in person and I had asked you about something and said, God, you must really be excited. And that you gave me the same response. You know, <laughs> I, I have chronic depressive disorder. This is my excitement. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I actually, I want people to know, um, you're a very funny guy and I love your sense of humor. Um, thank you. Reminds me a bit of Stephen Wright. Do you know Stephen Wright? Yeah, I'm not quite as deadpan as him, though. <laughs> he is good. Well, what, nobody is as deadpan as him. <laughs> that's true. He is like the definition of deadpan. But, right. but you're similar, and that's a compliment, because he's pretty damn funny. Yes. Yes, he is. My One of my favorites being, I spilled spot remover on my dog. Now he's gone. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he's a funny guy. I, um, I've, been, I've been getting into the what they call the non-jokes lately. Okay. Like, what's brown and sticky? No idea. A stick. Aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll just uh, move right on after that Yeah, one. you can cut that if you want. <laughs> so uh, tell us more about the podcast. So it evolved. Now you get guests. What type of guests do you guys usually have on the show? Wow. It, it varies quite a lot. Um, we will have, depending on what the topic is, we may have somebody who uh, has done something rather spectacular in their lives or somebody who is a, a doctor. Um, we've, we've had many doctors on the show. Uh, we've had, you know, people who are mini celebrities in certain areas, uh, that come on. We had a, a former Congress critter on the show. Um, Patrick Kennedy. Ooh. We've, we had, um, let's see the president of uh, Mental Health America was on the show once. So yeah, it kind of goes all over the place. And, and in other times, we'll just have, you know, Joe Schmo that we happen to know, you know, who can talk about this. Right. So it's it's all levels. It's, it's all across the board. That's that's really cool. So it's all levels, all different types of guests, all related mm -hmm. to, to mental health in one way or another. Exactly. Um, do you have a favorite show that comes to mind? <laughs> um. I don't know that I could pick just one, but but there are several uh, that we enjoyed quite a bit. In fact, um, one of them, one of my favorite shows, actually airs this week. All right. Tell us about that one. It goes live tomorrow. Um, our guest uh, is Tony Hoffman, who was, as a teen, uh, a very high-ranked amateur BMX kid. And things were great. He was on magazine covers and everything. and But then he got into drugs. And things went downhill, not surprisingly. And he eventually ended up being homeless, ended up in prison. When he got out of prison, he got back into BMX, took second place at the uh, 2016 Olympics in Rio. Um and today, he is a motivational speaker, and the talk we had with him was fantastic. Wow, sounds awesome. 
And uh, by the time I get this one published, uh, that one will be out. And mm-hmm. people people can get to your show by? They can go to psychcentral.com slash show. Awesome. Say it one more time. Psychcentral.com slash show. Slash show. All right, show. awesome. Uh, well, that's really cool, and that one's coming up soon. Yep. Um, got another one you can share with us? Another fave? We had um, one guest, um, a doctor who specializes in narcissism. And we've had two episodes on narcissism so far, and we're talking about doing a third one. And holy cow, those are just fascinating. Just fascinating. What was uh, so impressive about it? Well, you know, it's you're, you're taking something that, well, narcissism is a word that's on a lot of people's lips these days. I don't, I don't know why <laughs> Donald Trump, but <laughs> no idea but, who you might be referring no, to. No, but it's it's interesting to look at the behaviors. I mean, I've always been interested in you know what they would call the you know the abnormal realm of of, of mental health with these different diagnoses and whatnot, and the weirder the more interesting to me. And narcissism is just. It's fascinating and repellent at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so her analyses, because she is, you know, specialist in these, are very insightful, very informative, and just, wow, they end up in, in just really, really top-rated shows. Right. Cool. Have you ever had a guest on where you, either the guest had a mental illness or a doctor talking about a mental illness that you had maybe never heard of or it's very rare um well we gabe and i both being middle-aged men weren't exactly up on postpartum depression uh-huh. <laughs> but, but we did uh, we actually have done two shows uh, on that so you know those were ones where we learned way more than we knew beforehand right. so so i would say that yes okay do you guys do a bunch of research on your guests ahead of time? We do some, yeah. I mean, uh-huh. what we um, we obviously want to make sure that these people aren't, you know, total whack jobs. Strike that. We want to make sure that they're on the up and up. And, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so we do some research. We check out their websites and their materials, and sometimes they will send us a, uh, a book by the person. They'll send us an electronic copy, and we'll look at that. Um, but one of the things that we do too is is we ask our guests to tell us some of the things that they want to be asked or some of the things that they are most frequently asked because those things might not occur to us, mm, you know. Right. So it's good to know what they want to do. So, yeah, so there's research and there's information that they just give us. And then are the two of you in the same place when you're doing the show? Not at all. Um, Gabe is in Ohio. I'm in California. Right. That's what I thought. So explain to the listeners, what that, what's that like co-hosting with someone mm-hmm. who's not even there? So then you've got, essentially, you would have three people on the line all in different locations, correct? Correct. And, However, and you're co-hosting, so it's got to be tough, I mean, to play off each other and to have well, that proper synergy when you aren't even in the same room and can't see him. Oh, but see, that's the thing. Gabe and I connect via video. Okay, cool. Just the two of you? 
Yeah, so we can see each other. We can give each other signals. Like if you point at your face, that means you want to ask the next question. Okay. Um, and we have a little chat thing in the program that we use that we can send each other notes as well. Um, but the guests connect via telephone, and so they see none of that. Okay. Ideally, anyway. And when the two of you are like, that sounds so complicated to me. Because you really want to pay attention to the guest. You really want to mm-hmm. hear the answers so you can respond accordingly. Yet, you might be reading a note from Gabe, who, knowing Gabe, he might be calling, like, t- giving you shit, telling you it was an awful question you asked or something. <laughs> right? Because I, I know. Not, not usually an awful question, <laughs> usually an awful joke. Okay. All right. So, uh, but that's got to be complicated. It, it, yeah. But here's the thing, too Gabe and I have known each other for. I don't even want to think how many years it's been decades. So we know each other pretty well. So we kind of know how to read each other without needing a lot of input. Right. When did you guys first meet and were you guys friends? We met back in my hometown, um, in Pennsylvania. He, um, he was living there too. And, um, but the funny thing, I met him when he was about 18, I think. And the funny thing, though, is that I found out that his uncle was a good friend of mine back in, you know, like around eighth or ninth grade. That's funny. Eh. Yeah. And uh, and I knew his family, you know, the family there uh, for quite a while. In fact, Gabe's uh, Gabe's aunt Shelley was one of my babysitters when I was a kid. Oh, my goodness. Small town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then you met him through the family? I met him when he, well, let me say this. I saw him. <laughs> we were not properly introduced, but I saw him as a little redheaded toddler. That's funny. When I was just over visiting his Uncle David one day. Yep, kind of bizarre. And uh, so you met him as a toddler, and then <laughs> did you guys, I mean, what was your friendship like? Were you guys friends Oh yeah, yeah. Oh. We hit it off quite well. We had a lot of a lot of things in common, and just as we even do today, we just we talk a lot when we're together. We're just talking all the time. So all through these years, you guys have been connected. It wasn't like you reconnected for the podcast. No, no, we didn't. Um, there was a period of time where we weren't really in communication um, back in the early two thousands, uh-huh. but. So it's interesting too. I th- I think you guys make a great uh, pair, and I'm wondering what it's working, what it's like to work with Gabe, who I think of as lots of energy. And, yeah, <laughs> and then you know uh, his partner, the co-host with chronic depressive disorder. I know it's weird, huh? Is, well, it, it could. It, I think it works great, actually. Um, what? How do you think that impacts the show? I think it gives a nice balance to it. Gabe has frequently said that that one of the things that he values in me as a friend is that I keep him I keep him centered and, and down to earth because without somebody to keep him in check, he's just gonna go all nutty. So <laughs> when you guys before you even connected about the show, did you guys talk mental illness much? Mm. Were you both open about your diagnoses and so forth? We were, yeah, but I don't know that we talked about it a whole lot, no. Um, It just, it didn't seem like we needed to. At that time, he wasn't really the mental health advocate either. Uh He didn't, he didn't become that until, you know, some years later. 
but yeah, we talk about all sorts of stuff and we, uh, we learn from each other and it's cause he's a, he's a pretty bright guy. And, uh, I think, despite, I think you both are very bright guys. Thank you, Al. Um, but he used to insist that he was the funny one, but he had, he was quite roundly disproved on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, uh, again, very different types of sense of humors, right? One very gregarious and one kind of, as you mentioned, deadpan. Uh, so, I yeah, think of it as dry. Dry, dry sense of humor. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, well, the show is awesome. And, uh, Thanks. It's fantastic, and I think it's doing wildly well. So um, that's uh, that's amazing. So kudos to you guys. Thank uh, you. And then tell us about your other gig. You're an author, and you yeah. have published books. Yes, I do. So Four con- of them. Congratulations on that. That's awesome. Thank um, you. Tell us about your books. Oh, well, I write in the uh, umbrella genre of speculative fiction, which is sort of a a term that encompasses science fiction, fantasy, horror, all of the things where it's really wild imagination stuff. Okay. I had never heard that term. I saw it on your website. Yeah. So that's what it is. It's kind of a, you know, a group term for that. Is it similar to dystopia or does dystopia that, fit within would, there? That, yes, it absolutely would be part of that. Okay. Um, in fact, my second novel was uh, dystopian. And how do thing. you describe uh, or define dystopian? Well, a dystopia is a society that appears on some levels to be a utopia, but in reality is anything but. So, you know, we've had a lot of dystopian movies uh, and books in the past. Um, There's always some party that thinks, yes, this is fantastic. This is just how our society should be. It's perfect. But then, of course, the hero is like, "Um, no, no, I'm going to disagree with you there. So my my dystopian future book uh, came out in uh, 2004, and it is set in the 2020s, which is practically upon us now, <laughs> which is kind of a shock to me. That's funny. Uh, yeah, and it's it's a book about uh, the daughter of the U.S. president, and it begins with his inauguration uh, in 2021, and the daughter is at that time 11 years old and it covers a decade of her life. Cool. And and it's, it's a situation of where, you know, she's growing up and she idolizes her dad, but frankly, her dad is not the best for the country. Let's put it that way. And she, she starts to see that eventually, but all through this period, she is questioning all the stuff that teenagers do, you know, her sexuality, her, her belief system, just everything. And it, uh, and eventually she takes a stand against her dad. Wow, cool. What, uh, what's the title? That one's called One Nation Under God. One Nation Under God, and that was your first? Nope, second. Second. My first one, my first one was a fantasy novel called Wish You Were Here. Um, that came out in, initially came out in 2001 and then was put out again uh, several years later, just after uh, One Nation. I put a second edition out. Okay. And uh, and that was before Pink Floyd came out with the album "Wish You Were Here." Oh no, no, <laughs> no, no! In fact, that, completely that is unrelated. Exactly, 
No, actually, that is exactly where I got the title from. Really? Okay, cool. In the uh, in the novel, as I wrote it, there were five sections to the book, and each one had its own subtitle, and each of those titles was taken from a particular song, and "Wish You Were Here" being one of the sections and the name for the whole book. So, and the original the original novel had the lyrics printed in them, but of course I. Uh, when I published it, I did not include those because, uh, you know, money and rights and all of that yeah, stuff. Right. So, Oh, that's maybe, cool. That's got a, yeah. that's probably my, uh, one of my top five albums ever. It's an excellent album. Uh, great, great song. So four books. That's really cool. When was your most recent book? Uh, what year did it come out? Let me think for a second. Well, it was, it was about three years ago, I think was the second in, I'm, I'm doing a series right now, a trilogy. Uh, the first book came out, I think it was in 2014, and then the next one was like three years later. And then um, this next one is late. <laughs> um, it's, I'm struggling with this one, which really? is unusual for me. It's, it's really, yeah, I don't know what it is. It's just really bugging me. But the trilogy itself is called The Many Deaths of Dinah Mistress, and collectively they are the memoir of a superhero nice uh i was gonna ask you about dyna mistress um, mm -hmm. i saw dyna mistress on your website yeah and i saw a link and it, it so can you tell us a little bit more about dyna mistress sure uh dyna is here's what i wanted to do i've always loved comics um read them ever since i was a kid and until they became prohibitively expensive and I mean, I always enjoyed it, but the stories that I liked the most were the ones where it wasn't all about beating up bad guys. It wasn't about, you know, heroism and stuff. It was about the nitty-gritty day-to-day stuff. You know, what is life really like for somebody with these abilities? What do they have to go through? And also, what's it like if this person with abilities isn't maybe the most uh, noble person in the area. Right. So I decided to write a story about a woman who is very flawed on a number of levels. Uh, in deep inside, she's a great person, but life has kind of beaten her to a pulp and she has become bitter and, and whatnot. But she has been set on being a metahuman, you know, as, as I call them in there, uh, all of her life. And when she does become one, well, she is in it for all the wrong reasons. She's she's wanting fame. She's wanting to be on magazine covers uh, and all of that selfish stuff. And, of course, the, the story is about how she transforms from that into a, a, a fundamentally fantastic person. Cool. Sounds, yeah. Sounds awesome. Um. How do you uh, how do you get your ideas for your writing, and how do you even start writing a novel? Uh, <laughs> I know it's a big question, the, but you know, it, well, as far as the ideas go, some people just are flooded with them and can't get away from them. Um, and how you start is just how you start writing a text message. You know, you just start one word at a time. I used to think. Oh my God, how can people write 
these 300 page books because I can't even imagine writing something of, of that complexity and that length. And today, I look at people who write short stories and I say, how can you tell a story in such a small amount of space? That's funny. So I've completely, yeah, I've completely gone on the other end of that spectrum. <laughs> yeah, that's how you've evolved as a writer. Yeah. That's fantastic. We have uh, in the Twin Cities here in Minneapolis, the oldest standing writer's workshop that meets at a local bar. And uh, I went once and mm -hmm. it was an amazing experience. Unfortunately, it's a night I have to do a carpool for one of my kids. But it, it was a group of about 15 people, and I think it always varies. They have a microphone. Somebody does a reading from something that they've written, most likely a piece that they want to get published. Mm -hmm. And then they get very harsh critique, like real ah. critique. Verbal, probably about three to five people respond verbally, and then everybody jots notes on a note card and hands it to them. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was really cool to see. And I really wanted to keep going just for the experience of being a part of it. Yeah. I've, I've been part of writers groups in the past. Uh, one of them, in fact, we held here at my apartment for about a year and a half um, until life just got in the way for all of us. One, one person became a dad. And of course, you know, that kind of takes up a lot of your time. Oh, and yeah. Another person switched jobs and, you know, all these different things happened. So, you know, that was kind of the end of our group. But do, it was certainly rewarding. Do you uh, have somebody uh, who you go to to get some harsh I have criticism, a, harsh feedback? I do. I do. I have a few, a few reliable friends whom I use for feedback. I send them drafts and get their opinions and whatnot. Yeah, it's okay. very helpful. And. I feel like writers just have to have such a thick skin to, to really, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, yes. to get better at it, to really accept the feedback and to, to work on it. And, and then again, from publishers too, do you always work with the same publisher or are you self publish or how does that work? I started my own publishing company after a bad experience I had with another publisher. So yeah. Oh, cool. But you know, you're right, though, about the thick skin, uh, and and it's a very humbling thing, too. See, I went through high school being told by my English teachers that I was a fantastic and gifted writer, so that was cool. And then you go to college, and while your professors are, are going to be more critical than your high school teachers were, for the most part, it was still really good and positive feedback that I got, but you know, you've got to come to the conclusion at some point that you are not the greatest writer in the world. Right. There are people who are better than you. For so I, I got, I used to read almost uh, exclusively science fiction when I was younger. And when I branched out, I got into some really, really good authors, uh, one of them being Margaret Atwood. And I remember reading uh, The Handmaid's Tale and Cat's Eye and thinking, holy crap, this woman is such a good writer. I suck. But then I went back and I read some of her earliest novels because she, at that point, you know, she'd been writing for 20 years. So I read some of her first published books and I said, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm at that level or higher. So I, um, I don't suck as bad as I thought. So <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, you do. You have to be, 
I'm sure you have to just be willing to take a lot of that feedback that, I mean, I thought about it when I was at the writer's workshop and hearing the feedback and stuff, and I really wanted to put something out there. And then part of me was like, oh my God, I, I think it would crush me. Like, I don't know if my skin is thick enough to, to hear it, but I think it yeah. would be all in the sake of knowing this is to make me a better writer. Exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. Cool. Cool. So before we uh, wrap up here, Vince, I want to ask you if uh, we have any listeners who are in a place right now where they're really struggling with depression, uh, what types of suggestions or words of wisdom would you have for them? Well, the first and most important part is don't keep it to yourself. You know, you can't get help if nobody knows you need it. So reach out to your friends, to your family, to whomever you feel you can, you know, can rely on. And if it gets really super bad, that's why we have suicide hotlines. The people there, I used to be on the other end of that phone. So, you know, that's uh, something you should do. They're there to help you. Absolutely. So reach out. Yeah. Don't wait. Exactly. Yeah. Great advice. Well, Vince, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for being a part of Psych Central's podcast and doing that great work. And uh, we will be watching for the third of your trilogy coming out soon. Me too. (laughs) Soon being a relative (laughs) term. Yeah. I'll be be happy to see what... uh, what happens all right well awesome well thanks again vince and thank you al this was a pleasure all right well make sure you stay healthy all right thank you for listening to the depression files if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide please reach out for help in the united states you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.